When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. In one of Tulsa's largest hospitals, on the floors where patients are recovering from surgery, on the bulletin boards in those rooms, there are charts. Uh, On one end of the chart, a very sad face. On the other end of the chart, a very happy face. And then ten marks in between. And patients are asked to describe where their pain level is. How much pain are you having on a scale of one to ten? By the time Jesus lived, the Torah had been expanded to 613 commandments. There were 248 thou shalt's. And 365, thou shalt not. So a lawyer asked Jesus one day, on a scale of 1 to 613, what would you say is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered immediately from the scroll of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, a commandment at least as old as the reign of King Josiah. When the ten northern tribes had been decimated by the Syrians, The southern tribes were attempting meaningful reform. The priest came into King Josiah one morning and said, You'll not believe what we found last night when we were going through some old closets. A fifth scroll of Moses. We think the ink was still wet on that document when they brought it in. But the king bought it nonetheless. And Deuteronomy became an important part of the Bible. And in Deuteronomy you have this statement reflecting the two names they now had for God. It's called the Shema because of the first word, which means hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the I am who I am is our El. We must have no other God but this one. We must love this one with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. The Jews had a long history with this one true God. Good times, some really hard times. You know that Gail and I have sought out the best preserved of the Holocaust sites. I've been in one Jewish Christian dialogue group now for 22 years. I've read a lot of books and discussed them with Jews. I've met, I've read the writings of a number of Holocaust survivors. But to spend five hours with a guide leading us through Madonic in Poland. In that five hours, we saw only one other couple. It was just the guide and the two of us. It's a desolated, lonely place. Smells of something like creosote the Russians sprayed on it so it would be forever preserved. We had a one-day break, and our guide then took us to Auschwitz. We spent four hours there. We saw the the famous sign over the entrance there, uh, Arbeiten mocked Frei, uh, work will make you free. It didn't, of course. Uh, 
we choked down a little bit of soup and cracker and were taken to Birkenau and our guide led us through another four or five hours there. The famed Judenrampe, the train track that ran right in through the front gate and people were separated right and left, death or live a little longer, death, live a little longer. We've had the privilege of hearing Dr. Elie Wiesel in person, shaking his hand, this Nobel Peace Prize winner. He's now more than 80 years of age. He was 15 when he was taken to Auschwitz. His mother, the women of the family, immediately sent to the death side. He and his father to the live a little bit longer side. His father would die there also. Elie Wiesel has written about the first fall that he was there. Rosh Hashanah came, the new year. And the night before, he said, word had spread that all able-bodied men, able-bodied meaning if they could walk or crawl, come into the common area inside the barbed wires of Auschwitz and gather to say prayers appropriate to Rosh Hashanah, the ending of one year and the beginning of another. Young Ailey says, I've known the Rosh Hashanah prayers since I can remember anything. I've known these prayers, but I didn't want to pray them. Where was God? The sights I'd already seen, the smells I'd already smelled. Where was God? But I tell you, they came. They came in the darkness and huddled in that place. First a few, a few dozen, a few hundred. I would guess 10,000 men who knew they were so close to death gathered in that common place among the barbed wire to say, prayers to God. And then it would come Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Should we fast? Most of us were starving to death. Every day was a fast. But the elders said we should fast. That even though we were now locked in hell, we wanted God to know we could still sing praises to him. And Jesus says this is the most important one. He is not speaking lightly here. Hear, O Israel, the I am who I am. He is our El. We must have no other one but him. We must love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And then Jesus said, the second is like the first. Dr. Eugene Boring, Dr. Robert Gundry, Dr. F.W. Baer, all say what this means is uh, this one should be tacked right beside that first one that one does not love God without loving one's neighbor they just go hand in hand if one truly loves God one will love the neighbor if one truly loves the neighbor and wants good to come to him her them one will come to know the God who created them But there are behavioral scientists today who say, but it's not so easy to love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is not like you. Uh, When our tray went down to SMU and four years later when Jason went to SMU, they were told you will live the first year on campus. You will live in university housing. Uh, We will choose your roommate for you. You will not meet this roommate until the day you're checking in. Sometime later, I asked uh, one of the administrators of our university, how did you pair up these young men in in the other dorms, the young women? And they said, the Myers-Briggs test. I said, really? They said, yes, Myers-Briggs. We put these two young men or these two young women together because we knew now they processed data in a similar way. 
they could get along in the same small room without killing each other for the next nine months. One of Gail's and my favorite people in Houston, Texas, is Dr. Roger Berkman. Dr. Berkman is almost 90 years old now. He was a pilot in World War II. Came home to get his master's and doctoral degrees in psychology and set out to show the business community of Houston and eventually way beyond there that he could, in fact, tell you who would be successful in various job descriptions. And he based it on a test that printed out folks into one of four categories. He said he believed if he could program everybody in the world, they would fall out in thinkers, counters, doers, talkers. Thinkers may have great ideas and be unable to sell them. Salesmen may can sell refrigerators to Eskimos, but may never come up with anything original in their lives. You have to treat thinkers like thinkers and counters. We all know the bureaucrats who say, but that's what they told me to do. That's what they told me to say. That's what, where they told me for you to stand and so forth. So Berkman says 25% of the world are very comfortable being with thinkers and counters with counters, doers with doers and talkers with talkers, but talkers and bureaucrats don't get along at all. And thinkers don't get along with autocrats at all. You can't treat everybody else the way you want to be treated because they're not all like you. Some of them are like you. Many of them are not like you. So I struggle with this again all week. Are there certain things that we can be sure everybody needs from us? I put down three things. Number one, I believe everybody needs us to begin with that person where she or he is. Will you let me start from the point where I am. Will you accept me where I am for a beginning point? I was reading a story in the Wall Street Journal the other day about Marcel Rigg. Marcel was born in the Netherlands, has lived his whole life there. He's a Dutchman. Uh, Gail and I have been to the Netherlands. We did trains in Netherlands for almost three weeks uh, just a few years ago, and <clears throat> we see how flat that country is. It really is flat. So bicycle riding works great in the Netherlands. And they do ride thousands of bicycles, the most bicycles we had seen since we were in China. They ride lots of bicycles, or they ride little mopeds that do not need much horsepower because everything's flat. Marcel was riding a moped when he was 15 and involved in an accident. It left him brain damaged and blind. That was 22 years ago. He's 37 now, and he's been institutionalized almost all his life. He lives in a place where people really care about him and look after his needs, but he's institutionalized nonetheless. A few months ago, he received notice from his insurance company that they were offering him an all-expense-paid weekend in Lourdes, France. That 599 other people were given the same invitation. And some ask of this insurance company, what do you think? You're going to send these people down to Lourdes and they all get cured, healed, so you don't owe any more insurance money for them. And they said, no, we've been doing this for years. It costs us $300,000 to send 600 people down to Lourdes for a weekend. But we send the 600 sickest people we have every year. Almost never does anyone get healed. But they come back changed. You remember Lourdes, 1858, a 14-year-old girl convinced the village that she had seen the Holy Mother. 
that she had seen the Holy Mother and began to tell them what the Holy Mother had to say. And for the last 149 years, people have been trekking to Lourdes by the thousands, hoping to be blessed by the Holy Mother. Marcel said he would like to go to Lourdes, and he was flown down there. What he discovered when he got to the plane that morning with someone guiding, helping him along, was that one of the volunteers who was going was the doctor who had treated him 22 years before when he was first injured. Now a retired physician who was going as a volunteer with these 600 very sick people down to Lourdes. They had a whole weekend. They could go to Mass. Before that, if they chose, they could go to confession. They could go to the table of the Lord and receive grace once more, a reassurance that nothing stood between them and God. But on Sunday, they were taken to the grotto, to the cave, where this 14-year-old said she saw the Holy Mother. There's a beautiful statue there today of the Virgin Mary. And prayers were offered again. For three days, all 600 of these people were surrounded by loving, caring people. And when Marcel got home again and people were asking him in this same place where he lives what had happened to him, he said, I know now I will never see again. But it's okay. There are people who love me just the way I am. Number two, I think all of us need somebody to help us. Open a door. Help me. Help me have better than I've ever had before. You know, Chaz Palminteri? Chaz Palminteri grew up in the Bronx of New York. Uh, His father was a city bus driver. When Chaz was a little boy living in a predominantly Italian neighborhood, he saw a murder one afternoon late. A member of the mafia shot somebody down and ran away, and no one else had seen this crime unfold. Uh, Chaz grew up in that kind of neighborhood. He had the counsel of his mother and father saying that he should always be honest and fair and reputable. He should go to school and study hard. His father told him again and again, saddest thing in life is wasted talent. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. But every afternoon on the way home from school, he would see the people who drove the big flashy cars and wore expensive clothes. They were the drug dealers. They were the pimps for the prostitutes and so on. And there was a big temptation to join them. Chaz didn't do that. He followed the direction of his mother and father. He grew up with a real faith in God that God would look after him somehow, would take care of him, would always provide a way for him. He began as a singer right out of school, had some success, really wanted to be an actor, wasn't being chosen in all the auditions he attended in New York, so he made his way all the way to California, had a couple of bit parts in television series, just one-night things on television, not enough even to pay his rent, and eventually he made his way back to New York and had a job as a bouncer at one of the very prominent restaurants there, telling people who had a reservation and could get in and who couldn't get in. But one night there, he made a mistake. A fellow named Swifty Lazar, an agent, uh, was turned away by Chaz because he didn't have a reservation. He complained to the management that he didn't need a reservation. He should have been let in, and they fired Chaz. He said he went back to the little apartment that he had rented. He was 36 years old. 
He counted up all his money. He had $189. 36 years old and only $189 and no future. So he resolved that night that if no one would write a part for him, he would write one for himself. He went to a thrifty drugstore just down the street and bought five yellow tablets, went back to the apartment and sat down to write. He stared at those tablets and stared at them and stared at them. He didn't know what to write until suddenly he remembered that murder he had seen all those years before. And he wrote a story called A Bronx Tale. He went on Broadway to do that show. Hollywood wanted it. They offered him $200,000 to make it into a movie, but he would have to give up all rights and walk away. He said no, only if he could play the lead. They said no. His friends thought he had lost his mind. He had gone from $189 that he could now turn down $200,000. He was offered $400,000, $600,000, $800,000, a million. He turned it down because every one of those offers said, we have an actor, we want to play the lead. Then one night he got a call from Robert De Niro who said, I want your play. I will make it into a movie. I'll pay you a million and a half and you can be the star. And A Bronx Tale was made into a movie. Chaz Palminteri is playing that role on Broadway again now. His friends Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci and others have been to see him, Christopher Walken. But the other night when the play was over and the lights came up, he could see his own 12-year-old son. His mother had brought him there, didn't tell the father, didn't want him to play to the son, but wanted the son to see the play. In that play, prominently featured the advice of his bus driver father. And the 12-year-old came up to his dad after the play and said, Dad, I got it. I will not waste my talent, he said. I will not waste my talent. The director of the play says, Chaz Palminteri is a director's dream. He will do what he's told to do, and he believes the hand of God is on his life. Everybody needs a helping hand. Everybody needs somebody who will open the door, give you an opportunity. Number three, nobody wins all the time. Not you, not I. We all come up against things that hurt us. We are sick. We will die. Or someone we love most is sick or dies. It's always tough, and we need somebody who will stand closest to us on the hardest days of our lives. Brock Kidd has written about a day when he had lots to do. He's a financial advisor. He had an appointment across town. He was leaving in plenty of time to get there and be on time when he came across a funeral procession. He said, I couldn't believe it. A funeral procession right in the middle of town, stopping all the traffic pulled over, crossed his arms, you know, agitated that he was going to have to wait for all these cars to pass him. And then he remembered a time when he was 12. His grandfather had died. They just had the funeral. He was in a funeral home limousine in the back seat with his mother. They were riding through a small hometown down in the south to the cemetery. And he realized, as his mother pointed out to him, down here in the south, people pull over when funeral processions come by. Look at all these people who are pulling over beside the road because your granddaddy's death was important. About that time, he said, I saw the fellow in the car in front of me get out of his car. 
and sort of stand his attention as the procession went by. It seemed right to me. I got out of my car, closed the door, and stood there at attention, and there came the black Lincoln, an elderly woman sitting on the back seat all by herself. And her eyes locked to mine, he said, and I didn't know what to do. I just sort of nodded my head, and she gave me a little wave, but I could read her lips. Thank you, she said. Thank you. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I know for me, if you'll let me start where I am, open a door when you can, and stand really close when I'm having a bad day, I will love you forever. Amen.